Uh, we looked at the judges. There was no king. We looked at Saul, who was man's king. And now we are spending the next three weeks looking at King David, this, this prototype of Messiah, this mighty warrior, this uh, emotional young lad. We are looking at King David. And before we jump into the, the text and the body of the message, um, because I love history, I mean, if you all had a dollar every time I said that, you could tithe more. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're going to look at the timeline of uh, King David. Um, because I find this fascinating. And we're just going to do like a really high 30,000 foot flyover of the entire ministry of David up until the point that we're going to be covering uh, today. Uh, so so this, this is kind of the, the life and the story of David. In 1043 BC, Samuel the prophet anoints Saul, the first king of Israel. Eight years later, in 1035 BC, uh, it is believed that David is born in Bethlehem the 10th generation from Judah, the one who is supposed to be the king. 1025 B.C., Samuel goes down to the little town of Bethlehem and he anoints the shepherd David as the future king of Israel. It is believed that he is potentially between the ages of 10 and 12 years old, could be as old as his early 20s. Uh, David serves as a musician in Saul's court uh, in 1023 B.C. Um, he was a talented musician. You can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And at this time, Israel is led into war with the Philistines by King Saul. The Philistines in 1020, they send their champion, who is a warrior named Goliath, uh, against the shepherd boy David. David kills Goliath with a, thing, with a single shot from his sling. 1010, King Saul fires David from his court as a musician and makes him a commander in his army. David becomes a very successful warrior in Saul's army, and the king offers his daughter to David in marriage. Also in that year, Jonathan, the son of the king, becomes best friends with David, and they make an oath to one another for all their, phys uh, their future generations. This is where things take a shift for King David, and we'll spend a lot of time looking at this this morning. But in 1008 BC, David is threatened with bodily harm because Saul is jealous. Uh, and so David goes on the run. We'll talk a lot about that in just a few moments. Uh, David has a chance to kill Saul in 1005 BC, and he spares Saul's life twice. We'll expand on that in just a few moments. Then in 1000 BC, uh, Samuel the prophet dies. David uh, has some more encounters with some folks on his journey uh, towards becoming the king. Uh, Samuel is dead, so Saul goes to consult a witch. We heard about that just a couple weeks ago. And it is predicted that he is going to die the next day in battle, and he does. And then following that, David picks up where Saul left off and utterly defeats the Amalekites. And then in 993 B.C., David is anointed as the king of Judah and Israel. And that brings us to where we are at today, God's King, part two. Uh, we're going to talk about three things this morning uh, that will probably, uh, if you know me, uh, those three things will expand onto many things. Um, I don't just have three slides. I have 86. Um, we're going to talk about David on the run. We're going to talk about what caused him to go on this run, uh, what happened while on the run, and what we can learn from this run. We're going to talk about David, a man of honor. We're going to talk about how David honored and respected uh, 
his enemies even, and what that says about David and what that says to you and I. Then we're going to talk about David, this guy who wears his heart on his sleeve. We're going to talk about some of David's emotions. We're going to talk about some of the things that David goes through and how he copes with different uh, emotions that one can feel, how we can learn from what David did, how maybe we can apply what David did to our own lives. But before we do any of that, let's dive in to prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together as the body of Christ. For the opportunity that we have to come together as your church, to study your word, to worship with one another, to sing songs, and to, to lift up our prayers and our supplications before you. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we get to partake in the plan that you had for us. Uh, God, as, as we come together as the church and as we study your word, God, we pray that this morning you would reveal truth to us. God, that as we spend these next moments looking at your perfect word, uh, God, God, our rule of faith and conduct, this, this perfect law of liberty. God, we pray that as, as we read the scriptures, God, as we discuss the stories contained within the scripture, God, we pray that you would reveal to us, uh, God, things about ourselves, things about you, God, how we can become more like you in all that we do. God, we thank you that your word is living and active. God, we thank you that your word penetrates to the deepest parts of who we are and reveals to us who we are and reveals to us who you are. God, we thank you that your word endures forever and that these historical narratives, these stories that were written down thousands of years ago are still just as applicable today as they were then and as they have been throughout human history. So God, we, we humble ourselves in your presence God, we are excited to look at your word. God, we pray that you be honored and you be glorified through the study of your word. We pray all these things in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Let's talk about David on the run. Not some marathon, not some uh, uh, just jog. No, like literally he's running for his life. I want to give you just a couple events that lead up to David going on uh, this flight for his life. The first thing that occurs is um, Saul uh, and his spear. Now, Saul's spear is going to come up multiple times, um, but you may remember the story. Uh, David, he is hired by Saul uh, to be his personal solo artist. He's got his harp, and he's just shredding on his harp to calm Saul's spirit. Because Saul has a distressing spirit. He, the, the, the spirit of the Lord has left him and something else has come in. And Saul is dealing with all sorts of emotions. And he hears that David is a pretty good musician. So he hires David to come to play music that will soothe his soul. And it does. But on two occasions, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and then again in 1 Samuel chapter 19, something arises within Saul where he is angry with David. The Bible tells us that at one point, he picks up his spear and throws it at David while David is playing his harp. Now, I don't know 
how many of you paid attention to the news in like the early 2000s, like 2006 maybe. Uh, I remember being um, someone who, as I was getting ready, my mom always had the news on. And at one point, I saw this uh, video of the then president of the United States, George W. Bush. He was in Iraq giving some sort of uh, speech. And there was a uh, disgruntled person in the audience who uh, promptly removed their shoe and chucked their shoe at George W. Bush. Anyone remember that scene? And George Bush there at the podium giving the speech, he sees the shoe coming. I can only imagine it just goes slow motion, and he just like dodges, and the shoe goes right past him, and he leans back up, and he goes, you missed me. And then he just keeps going. And I'm like, wow. I imagine that's what David did as he's playing his harp here. Saul throws the spear, slow motion. He dodges it, and then just continues. Well, it just so happens that a couple days later, They're hanging out together again. David's playing his music. Saul picks up a javelin. And then the Bible tells us, with the intent of pinning David to the wall. He's not just like tossing spears willy-nilly. He is trying to impale David to the wall and end David's life. Now, I mentioned just a few moments ago, David was fired. He didn't quit. He was a glutton for punishment, I guess. Because he stays in the court of Saul, even though Saul is trying to kill him. Uh, Saul goes through his emotions. Uh, He then likes David after he's throwing spears at him. And he says, man, do you want to marry my daughter? David says, yeah, she's pretty cute. I'll do it. And then Saul says, okay, there's a price for my daughter. Um, You've got to go kill and bring me back a hundred Philistine foreskins. Weird culture, not our culture. Um, So David says, yeah, I got this. So David then goes and kills 200. He's really trying to be the overachiever for the future father-in-law. But you can see what the future father-in-law, King Saul, is trying to do here. He's sending David on a suicide mission because he's got a terrible aim with spears. And so he's like, I can't pin him to the wall. Maybe the Philistines will kill him. But David is victorious. And Saul is still trying to hunt him down, so much so that in 1 Samuel chapter 19, uh, we get this story. Jonathan has already warned him, like, David, don't be around here anymore. My dad wants to kill you. But Saul hires some ninjas. He hires some assassins to come kill David in his sleep. But uh, David's now bride, the daughter of Saul, catches wind of this, says, David, hey, you got to leave, man. Like, I love you, but my dad's going to kill you. She lowers him out the window, and David goes on the run. Um, You can hear David's thoughts and his emotions about this whole, like, Assassins in the Night story uh, in Psalm chapter 59, uh, if you want to read that on your own time. But the story continues on. Uh, David had good friends. One of his friends was Jonathan, the son of of Saul, and we're going to learn more about him next week. Um, But he, he, he's going to war for David. At one point, uh, after David has evaded the assassins, he's invited to dinner. Jonathan is going to be there at dinner with them. Uh, Saul, who knows, maybe he's got spears hidden under the table that he's going to try and throw at David at dinner. Uh, but David doesn't show up. And Saul's terribly mad. And he looks at Jonathan, calls out Jonathan for helping this interloper and, 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 and trying to disrupt what the king's plans were. He even like threatens death to his son. I mean, it's, it's a bad deal. Uh, but David, David at this point is running for his life. He is fleeing to the region of Gath. Now, for all the Bible nerds in the room, uh, 
Who knows who comes from Gath? Yeah, Goliath. David has just chopped off the champion of the Philistines' head who's from Gath. Now David runs to that town for safety. I don't know what David was thinking. I mean, Saul's got bad aim with spear, but now he's going to the town of the very people that he has enraged in war. Um, David then pretends to be crazy. Works out for him. The people of the Philistines are like, this dude's so crazy, we don't even want to mess with him. Uh, and, and so they leave him alone. Uh, but it is there, on the way to this location, uh, David meets uh, with Ahimelech, who is a prophet in the temple that is there at Nob. Nob is a city uh, on the way to Gath, and it is there at this temple that he is given and gifted the sword of Goliath. Um, Saul catches wind of this. Now David, his enemy, the one that the people love, now has the prize and the possession of war. Um, and so he sends his friend Doeg uh, to go find out what David is up to. Uh, I've called this Doeg the dog because Doeg does some pretty messed up stuff. He kills Ahimelech uh, and he kills all of the priests there at the temple while chasing David. So now not only is he like angry with David, but now he's angering God because he's killing God's prophets and priests. Um, David catches wind of this, wants to go fight, and, and is like, ah, okay, my life is on the line. So he flees to a city that is named Kyla. Uh, now I would love to spend an hour talking to you about what happens at Kyla. Uh, David prays, asks the Lord what's going to happen in the future. God tells him what's going to happen in the future. Uh, and then David changes his mind and does something different. So the future that God shows David never came to pass. So there's all sorts of things about predestination and foreknowledge we could talk about there. We'll shelve that for another discussion. But let's just know that David goes to Kyla. He says, God, if I stay in Kyla, uh, is Saul going to destroy Kyla? Or will the people of Kyla give me up to Saul? David is convinced that, God is gonna uh, that Saul is going to destroy the city of Kyla. So David, wanting to spare the people of Kyla, he flees yet again as he is on the run. And he flees to a region known as Ziph. And it's in this region that as he's running around playing cat and mouse with King Saul for years in this region, uh, on two occasions, he's able to sneak into the camp of Saul. And much to the frustration of David's soldiers and the men who are with him, he does not kill King Saul. And we'll talk about those um, moments here in just the next couple minutes. But what I want to talk about just as we look at that whole picture, that whole narrative of, of David on the run, uh, it's r reminding me of this concept that we see throughout Scripture and throughout history, and it's the persecution of God's chosen. You see, Saul was anointed king, but he was rejected by God because of his sin, and David is now the chosen of God. He is going to be the king of Israel. He is going to be the new line by which Messiah will come. And Saul doesn't like that. And not only is it Saul who does not like that, but it's the distressing spirit within Saul. It is the wicked supernatural forces that are against Yahweh. And there is a persecution of God's anointed, of God's chosen leader. This whole story and this, this whole idea of the persecution coming against the chosen of, of God is mirrored in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate 
of God's chosen. He is the anointed one. He is the Mashiach. He is the Messiah. And the rulers of this world, both in the physical sense and in the supernatural sense, uh, they did not like that Messiah had showed up on the scene. And so we have Jesus being constantly hounded down and persecuted by the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. They're trying to disrupt everything that's going on with him. They actually turn him over to the Romans who will also go on to persecute him. Pontius Pilate, even though he washes his hands of it, is, he's, he's a part of the persecution that is coming against Jesus. So much so that you know the story, they bring him to the cross. And he is executed for his claims to be the king of the Jews. Now, we're not going to go into the full story here. You know it. The story of salvation. He rises from the dead. And, and we have victory and new life in Christ as a result of that. But the very persecution that David faced, that Christ faced, uh, also is mirrored in the early church. And what the early Christians faced and the persecution that those who were the disciples, those who were apostles and followers of Jesus, and then as the church began to uh, expand, they faced great persecution there in the first few centuries of the church. Time doesn't afford for us today to talk about how of the 12 disciples, how 11 of them faced martyrdom, where they died for their faith. We have record of many of those stories. One of my favorites, we're not going to talk about all of them, but we'll talk about a couple of them. Uh, Andrew. Uh, Andrew is a missionary after the, the, the time of the book of Acts, and he's out spreading the gospel, and he's arrested. And uh, he is said, hey, you will be crucified if you do not renounce Jesus. And he goes on to give an eloquent speech that has been summed up in the words uh, as, as he affirms Christ and is being ushered to his crucifixion, it says in the historical record that when he sees the cross on the hill, he, he utters the words, O cross, O cross, how I have longed to embrace thee. Uh, he, he, he knew that he was going to fall in the footsteps of his Savior. Peter, one of the disciples, um, he was also crucified for his faith, uh, but he said he was not worthy to die like Christ. So he asked the Romans who were crucifying him to put the cross upside down so that he wouldn't die the same way Jesus did. Um, Paul, the apostle, he is beheaded for his faith in Jesus. It continues on, and uh, it, this is actually the subject that I wrote my thesis on when I was in college, is, is the first 200 years of the church and, and the persecution and the things that occurred there in the Roman Empire. There's so much to talk about, so I encourage you, uh, if you want to study this for your Self or, or go read it on your own. Uh, there are great, great books out there, but one of them that I absolutely recommend is Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, it, it, it is a book that lists many of these historical accounts of those who gave their life for the faith, fulfilling the very things that Jesus said to his followers in John 15, verses 18 through 25, where he reminds them, hey, they hate you, they hated me first, and they're gonna hate you because of me in you. Um, and so this is a part of what it means to be a follower of Christ is that you face persecution. Now, that's not happy-go-lucky. I don't think you came to church this morning to hear, hey, you love Jesus? It's going to suck because people are going to come after you. But that is a part of following Christ. Persecution as the norm. 
Now, I've got a couple questions that I've written down here. Uh, do we face persecution? Uh, I, I think if we took a poll of the room, some would say, yeah, we face persecution. Others would say, eh, no, we actually have it pretty good here in the United States. And we're not going to get into that because here's the reality. Uh, we have brothers and sisters who are facing way harder things than we face here across the globe. Um, but you may still, in your situation, face discrimination for your faith. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, how do we deal with these things when they come against us? I think David might have some things for us there. Um, are we prepared for persecution? Are you, as a follower of Christ, ready if persecution were to break out? Um, and I don't mean you have like a stockpiled uh, set of ammunition and a bunker under your house. That's not how we deal with persecution, okay? Uh, I, I, I just finished a book this week um, that, that is, uh, talks about Islam and the spread of Islam and what our brothers and sisters are facing in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia uh, when, when it comes to persecution from uh, the religion of Islam. And what this book, um, one of the, the things that it was trying to get through at the end of it uh, was an appeal to Western Christians um, to be ready for persecution, not physically, but emotionally and spiritually. Um, are you at a place where you are willing to and eager to give your life for the gospel? Uh, and it was a wake-up call to me as I was reading it because I was like, you know, I got it pretty easy. Um, am, am I at a place where I could say, if push came to shove, if my life is on the line, Jesus. If my life is on the line, Jesus. Uh, and I am there. Uh, and, and, and I pray that that day doesn't happen. Uh, but then the book encouraged us that uh, the early church, they embraced this as, as something that was normal. Um, and it was an honor to give one's life for the Lord. And, and so it's welled up some emotions in me that I've been wrestling through. Uh, and as King David, his life was on the line. Uh, he, he was dealing with some of these things as well. So, so would we in this situation, act like David. Um, David had a plan. David had a purpose. He's on the run, but when push came to shove, he, he, he stood up and he faced things with courage. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. Here's what the New Testament says to you and I when it comes to persecution and, and, and the affront and the attack that we may face from this world or from uh, our, our, our supernatural enemies. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, verses 10 through 12, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says this later in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, says, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Often we like to, when we face trial and tribulation, we like to um, complain. Paul says, no, nah, I'm content. Because when I face this, it builds me up. Peter 
who we just talked about being crucified upside down, he says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14. He says, but even if I should suffer for righteousness' sake, you, God, will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor should you be troubled. Paul writing to the church in Rome, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Peter again writes, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and, the God, uh, and of God rests upon you. James, the brother of Jesus, in a popular and familiar verse, says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James goes on to say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness uh, have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul again writing to the church in Rome. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and that character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. And then the last verse that I want to talk about just briefly from the New Testament when it comes to persecution Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast that you have so that no one may seize your crown. We are encouraged in the New Testament. We are encouraged by the apostles who went before us that we are going to face trial. It's not an if, it's a when. You might be in it right now. You might be like David where you feel like you're on the run, but the encouragement that we have from Scripture is to stand firm to be steadfast, to understand that the persecution that we may face, the hardship we may face, the trials that we may go through, they produce in us character, and that character produces hope, and that hope does not disappoint. Hope is the absolute expectancy of good to come, and that good is our eternity with Christ Jesus. So whether we lose our life for our faith, or like David, our oppressors are removed, and God raises us up, uh, we still honor him in everything we do. Amen? Amen? Okay. That's probably a sermon in and of itself that we could expand on, but I've got three points, right? Okay. David was on the run, but David was also a man of honor. Uh, he encountered Saul twice, like we said there, in the wilderness of Ziph, and he spares his life uh, two times. It's crazy. Um, I'm not going to read all this for you for the sake of time, um, but write this down. Go read it this afternoon. 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to read a little bit because I like it. This is what it says. Now it happened when Saul was returning from, the, uh, from following the Philistines that it was told him saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Not spaghetti. Some of you heard that. He's in the wilderness of Engedi. And then Saul took 3,000 of his chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. Um, David and his men happened to be staying in the recesses of that cave. Then the men of David said to him, this 
is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hands, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now I'll let you go read the rest of this. But uh, David has this wonderful encounter uh, with King Saul here. Uh, as he had the opportunity to kill Saul, as Saul is taking care of his business in the cave, uh, David instead decides he's going to cut just a part of his garment off. Um, Saul goes back out, joins his army, and they're going to go on the way, and David comes out of the cave holding this little piece of cloth, and he's like, hey, Saul, yeah, I could have killed you, um, but I didn't, and actually I'm ashamed, not that I didn't kill you, but that I cut your robe because you're the Lord's anointed. And I shouldn't rise up against you. Saul hears this and says, David, my boy, is that you? David says, yes, yeah, it's me. And Saul is welled up with emotion because he could have just lost his life. And probably rightfully so for what he's been doing. But David took the time to honor him. So it was that when David had finished speaking these words, Saul said, is that your voice, David? Saul lifted up his eyes and wept. And then he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for I have reward, or, or for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown me this day how you have dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know that indeed you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. You see, David's reaction to Saul in this situation where David had every right to lash out, to, to finish the job, to, to uh, kill Saul and be rid of his problem. Instead, he faces Saul with honor because he knows ultimately it's not Saul he's, he answers to. It's not his men he answers to, but it's God that he answers to. And in God's economy of scales, the story where you feel like David would have been just in killing Saul... It just so happens that in his humility and his honor, God rewards him even more. Because now the king says to David, surely God's right in choosing you. And you will be the one who establishes the kingdom of Israel. The enemies are now praising God's plan. Sadly, Saul doesn't stick to his guns. Just a couple months later, um, 1 Samuel chapter 26, same kind of thing occurs. I have it up here in the message uh, translation of the Bible because I, I, was, I was reading it in the message and it sounded really uh, uh, narrative and, and the conversation is really fun. I'm not going to read it all for you today, but, but, but go home and read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6. I'll summarize it with this. Uh, Saul goes back out to chase David. And as he's chasing David, one night he sets up camp. Uh, and David realizes, oh my goodness, that's Saul in his camp. And David says to a couple of his, be uh, his best friends, hey, who's going to go with me down to the camp to see what's going on? Uh, and one of them says, yeah, I'll go with you. So David and his, and his friend, they sneak into the camp and they find Saul sleeping. 
And there's that spear that's been thrown at David twice, stuck in the ground right next to Saul. And so David's friend says, hey, let me take the spear. And with one stroke, I won't even need a second stroke, I can end his life. I can pin him to the ground. Just like he wanted to pin you to the wall, we can finish the story and pin him to the ground. And David says, no, 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 no. This is the Lord's anointed. David then takes the spear and takes his jug of water and they leave. And in the morning, Saul's getting ready with his camp, doing his thing. The Bible doesn't tell us that he missed his spear, but he must have because he loved it. Um, and then he looks up on the mountainside and there's David, spear in hand, jug in hand. Says, hey, Saul, we did this thing again. Saul looks up and much of the same. He repents for what he does. And at this point, Saul leaves. And Saul ceases to chase after David. David is no longer on the run at this point. Saul is very quickly after this going to go consult a witch, go to battle and die. But David honoring Saul uh, paid dividends for him in his life. David had a heart for God's sovereign will. And it was God's provision and providence that at this time Saul was the king. And David honored that. Paul encourages the church in the New Testament on multiple occasions that we too, even when we face people that don't like us in power, uh, government, when the government doesn't like us, that we are to honor those who are in authority because we know that God has put them there. Romans chapter 13, we are encouraged. Um, I'd say go read Romans chapter 13. Go read Romans chapter 13. There's a whole little bit about paying your taxes. And I just finished doing my taxes this last week. And I was like, ah, oh, why do I have to follow God's word? But I do. And it's important. And we need to be, as citizens, we need to be the most upright citizens. Because what we are doing is we are living out the gospel and the God whom we serve. And it speaks to people. One of these... Uh, quotes that you hear often is, is preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Anyone remember that quote? That's from St. Francis of Assisi. Um, St. Francis is amazing. Uh, I, I, I've loved that quote and I've always said, but St. Francis missed the boat. We have to use words. Um, but then this week as I was reading that book on, on Islam and the spread of Islam and, and, and Christianity, uh, I read the whole story of St. Francis. Um, St. Francis says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. How many of you know the story of St. Francis? St. Francis takes about 100 monks with him and leads. He, he, he goes just a couple days before the crusaders as they're making their way into uh, the Holy Land for the crusades. And Francis and his monks, they go to the sultan, the caliph of the invading Islamic army. They have no weapons and St. Francis goes to the guards, those who are, who are there, who are, the, who are the security for the caliph. He says, hey, I want to speak to the sultan. Uh, they arrest him. They beat him up. And then the sultan's like, this is weird. You're a Christian and you can't. Okay, our, our, our religion tells us to honor the people of the book, so I'll, I'll at least hear you out. And St. Francis goes and he ends up spending time with the sultan. And, and, and we know from history that... Uh, he was moved. Uh, and, we, and we don't have time this morning. I highly encourage you to go read the life of St. Francis. Um, but it moves this Islamic leader who's going to war, so much so that some historians wonder if he abandoned his faith and took on the faith of St. Francis. St. Francis learns 
some practices that had been forgotten in Western Christianity but were prevalent in the East. Uh, and he brings them back into the Franciscan order. And, and so there, there are those who are in the lineage of St. Francis in the Franciscan order who they pray Christian prayers five times a day, modeling some of the things he learned. But what's crazy here is St. Francis did use words, but he didn't rebel against the authority. He used his submission to the authority to bring the gospel, and it brought change. I think that's super cool. Paul instructs Titus and Timothy also that they are to honor those in authority because this is God's will for him. So I put here, why? Uh, why should we do these things? Why should we honor even potentially wicked government? Uh, but it's because God is working his perfect plan. We don't know what he's doing behind the scenes. David could have killed Saul, and in killing Saul, maybe David would have disqualified himself. But David understood that God was doing something bigger, and he did not want to disqualify himself. How many of you think maybe we can learn from David there? Yeah. Okay, let's jump to this last point real quick. David wearing his heart on his sleeve. David was, um, he was not afraid to show some emotion. How many of you have read the Psalms before? Um, 73 of these Psalms were written by David, uh, and David has no problem showing the things that he is experiencing and going through. Three times David, or, 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 or three different things I want to look at specifically in the Psalms in these just few short moments, is David sings a lot of songs of sorrow. Great one to read, Psalm 31. Uh, David sings dirges of doubt. I want you to see what I'm doing here. I was really proud of this last night when I was putting these slides <laughs> together. Uh, Psalm chapter 13. David also sings fados of fear. Um, it's a song. It's a, it's a song type, right? Yeah. Alliterations are fun. Um, and he, he writes 73 of these psalms uh, where he is dealing with sorrow, doubt, fear, and a whole other gambit of emotions. How many of you in the room can relate? There are times where we go through sorrow. There are times when we go through doubt. There are times when we go through fear. Anyone else in the room? Yeah. But David had a response to all of these. Um, he was not just an emo kid. Yeah. Um, he, he, he had a response to all of these. Because not only did he have songs of sorrow, dirge, dirges of doubt, and photos of fear, um, but he had timbers of truth. All right. He had fanfares of faith. And he had shanties of courage. <laughs> it's pretty good, right? David always understood that when things are the worst... God is doing something behind the scenes and he can take what feels destructive, depressing, and evil and he can turn it around for his purposes and for his glory. So when all of these psalms, you can see David's heart and he just feels like he's being crushed. He feels like he's uh, grapes in a wine press being destroyed. He feels like he's a ship being tossed in the sea and being crashed down on. He feels like his enemies are surrounding him on every corner and that he just wants to die. I mean, David says explicitly like, Lord, kill me. But then he reminds himself, as I believe the Spirit is reminding David, and I believe that same Spirit reminds you and I, I'm here. David will say, but you, O oh Lord, you are my refuge. You are my strength. 
David turns the attention back to the Lord. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. He says, do not be obsessed with getting more material things. Be relaxed with what you have since God assures us, I will never let you down. I will never walk off. I will never leave you. And then we can boldly quote, God is there. He's ready to help. I'm fearless no matter what. Who or what can get to me? So as we conclude the second part of David's uh, messages in the series and, and, and the things that David was going through, David on the run, David a man of honor, and David who wore his heart on his sleeve, we want to look at the deeper, the closer, and the further moment and how we can apply these things to our life. And I really want to pull these three uh, applications directly from how David uh, wrote the Psalms, how David dealt with things in the Psalms. Uh, when he had sorrow, his response to sorrow in the Psalms was trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understandings, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So when we think about going deeper, I want to encourage you, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. I don't know what you're going through, but I know this. God is in control, and we can trust him. We can trust him. Cast your burdens unto him because he cares for you. As we think about what it means to draw closer, when David faced doubt, his response to doubt was faith. I want to encourage you here. If you have doubt, that's totally okay. God's not angry with doubt. Um, God actually is like super okay with doubt because it's in those moments when we doubt and we ask questions that God reveals himself to us more and more. The author of Hebrews says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. When you face doubt, like David faced doubt, have faith. It's like trust, but it's a little bit more because it's the substance, but it's also the evidence of what you have not yet seen. So my encouragement to you as you face doubt, which we all will, have faith. Seek out what the Lord has for you. And the last one here, when it comes to reaching further, when David had fear, he rebuttaled his fear and he countered his fear with what it means to be courageous. I even said he's saying shanties of courage, right? You might be familiar with this portion of scripture because we just went through it a couple months ago as we were looking at Joshua, but Joshua was encouraged to be, uh, to, to be strong and of courageousness. He, he was to have courage in all things. Uh, when we face fear, uh, the encouragement is to be strong and of courage. For the Lord is the one who fights our battles. For the Lord is the one who goes before us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Amen? Amen. Okay, next week, we're going to finish out our story of, of David. We're going to look at him as the warrior king. We're going to look at the company in which he surrounded himself with. And then we're going to look at his struggles, his legacy, and how King David is a reflection of King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let, let me pray for you, Lord. We just thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for the life of David. Uh, and God, as we skim the surface of, of the complexity of who this man is. 
God, we pray that you would continually reveal to us, uh, God, not only your plan throughout history, but your plan for each and every single one one of us individually. So Lord, we just thank you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.